introduction because I know I have um, a number of new folks who have joined our community or started following me recently on Instagram. My name is Dr. Erica Jordan Thomas. I'm a former teacher, former principal, um, former, yeah, former principal, I was going to say former school leader, same thing. Um, I got my doctorate in education leadership from Harvard Graduate School of Education, and I'm a full-time entrepreneur. I've had my personal consulting business um, for five years. So about five years, I started in October of 2017 when I was a middle school principal. Um, and so if you're ever wondering if you could do this while while still working a nine to five, the answer is yes, because that was my story. And I starting my consulting business is actually what allowed me to go back to quit my job and go back to school full time. And so um, within the first eight months of starting my consulting business, um, I sorry, I'm looking at the chat here and I'm like, oh, I'm getting hyped. I'm getting excited. Um, but within the first eight months of starting my consulting business, I had paid off all my credit card debt. I had established three months of savings. And so um, my mind was blown at the the rate in which I could earn money in my consulting business Um and the difference in input that it required. And so I'm a former high school math teacher. So when I think about the concept of input versus output of the input of energy that it required was significantly different. So it actually required a, a decrease in input in terms of my energy and my time, but the output was greater. And my mind was just blown at how much money I was able to make with a completely different level of commitment and time. And so I started my consulting business, continued to grow my consulting business, and then started a second arm of my business in March of 2020 called Get Launch Consulting, which shifts the power dynamics in the education sector and helps disrupt the racial wealth gap by helping mar help, helping high-performing educators from marginalized communities grow six-figure education consulting businesses. And so um, that's work that I am so passionate about. I'm so fired up about. I still most certainly deeply at my core, I'm an educator. My, so my purpose still feels the same. Um, when I look back through all of my entire life trajectory, every position that I've held, every role that I've held, any decision professionally that I've made, the purpose has always been to co-create freedom for with other communities, marginalized communities. That's always been the through line is co-creation of freedom in partnership with marginalized communities. So that purpose is still very much so the same. It's just my assignment has changed that now um, I am in deep partnership with educators from marginalized communities to help them co-create their freedom. Um, and we do that by helping them build their six-figure education consulting business. So um, I wanted to hop on tonight and have this conversation around what money with ease feels like. And so I tweeted a while ago this thought of um, it's hard to dream when you're surviving. And that came to me because I think two reasons. I think about just the work that I've done. So in my entire career has been working and leading in under-resourced um, in excluded communities, communities that have been pushed to the margins, black and brown communities. And 
for many of my 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 kids because of they were in survival mode there it was it was either hard for them to dream or they're they're they didn't have access to different experiences to be really expansive about their dreaming so like if you had asked them like if you could go anywhere where would you want to go you know sometimes the answer would be well I want to go downtown right because uh, our system had failed them in being able to be expansive with how we we expose them to different opportunities so they were limited in their dreaming and i also think this is true for us as adults is when we are in survival mode and now you've compounded our experience of our limitations for whether it's the narratives we're telling ourselves the narratives the racist sexist misogynist messages that homophobic uh, transphobic messages that we've inhaled through our society that was created to center cis white gender, cis gender, straight white males. Um, and that's not you. You receive messages that push you to the margins, that tell you that you don't belong, that tell you what you can and cannot do. And so there are, if, if we're not conscious around those message and it's, it's, and I say this in a way that um, consciousness is a lifelong journey. And, you know, Beverly Tatum, who's the author of Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria, she creates this analogy around it's the smog that we're all breathing in, right? And so, like, in some way, shape, or form, we've all breathed in the smog. It's just to what extent that we've internalized it and we've all internalized it in some way. Another analogy that sits really well with me is when we talk about racism, all the isms, um, even Islamophobic, um, when we talk about centering language, citizenship, like all those pieces of our identity, um, all those isms, you know, aren't the shark in the water. They're the water <laughs> that we're all swimming in. And so... I say all that to say that like even as us as, as adults, like there are things that we've inhaled in terms of uh, internalized oppression and and the ways in which particularly those of us from marginalized communities, the ways in which those impact our ability to dream for ourselves of what we think is possible, of what we've identified as possible. And so um, last week in my program, Get Launch Consulting, um, we have 79 clients enrolled in our program, all phenomenal educators who are are going after their freedom through growing their six-figure education consulting businesses. We actually last week had a kickoff call for something exciting we're doing in our community of a 10K and 10-day challenge, which is a challenge that was originated by entrepreneur Rachel Rogers. Um, and we, we took her thinking and framework and for that challenge. And we really made it our own as educators. Um, and we're actually kicking off our prep week for that tomorrow. And when we were having our kickoff call for the community, um, last week, one of our coaches, Latrice, who's here, 
um, was talking around some of her reflections of in her journey in her own business, how her thinking has been disrupted, because that's a piece we talk about frequently in the community is in order to go to your next level, it requires some level of disruption, disruption in your thoughts, disruption in your beliefs, disruption in your actions. So like this expectation of comfort is not a realistic expectation that you should be anticipating disruption in your journey as you're going to your next level. And so as we were reflecting as a coaching team around this thought of disruption, you know, Latrice really beautifully shared around like, being able to disrupt our thoughts around around ways of working, that making money could come with ease, that we can live in the her words that she used, which I think were beautiful, of like a gentle life of ease, that that making money, making good money does not require being on a hamster wheel. Right? And so like, and I want to be clear because I just had a, a live about a season of sacrifice. Like in order to to break your own personal internalized oppression and and to go after your freedom, it, it requires a season of sacrifice. But that season of sacrifice is not long term. It's not forever. Like you double down, you commit, you 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 are are you set really clear boundaries um, to go hard in your business and then you bust through the doors of freedom and then there's that's where it's like the momentum that was required before has now multiplied and compounded on itself that it doesn't require the same level of input in order to get the output. So for example, early on in your business, your marketing strategy is going to require a lot of energy. It's going to require a significant amount of energy. But Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, talks about a a theory or idea called the flywheel effect. If you think about a flywheel of the first turn requires so much energy, but each turn gets a little less harder. Each turn gets a little bit easier. And it's called the flywheel effect where that first turn made the second turn easier. The second turn made the third turn easier. The fourth turn made the fifth turn easier. And with each step that you take forward, it's laying the foundation for the next step. So the first webinar that you had, you may only had five people show up and nobody opted into your services, but that's five more people who know about your business. So the next time you do a webinar, if one of those five people show up, maybe now they've seen you on social media, they've been getting emails from you. Now you've warmed them up that the next time you do a webinar, they actually decide to enroll. So that first webinar was not a failure just because nobody purchased or nobody opted into your services. According to the flywheel effect, you've been turning and each one of those turns has actually made created momentum in your business such that now... The flywheel requires a different level of energy, can just start going. So I say that to say is, you know, when Latrice was having this beautiful reflection on uh, this disruption, I think this is the case for many of us as educators, because this was the case for me, is that, you know, we have to disrupt our thinking on the energy it takes to make money, on this belief that money is hard. And the reality is, is that there is is a different way of being in which money can come with ease, that money can can um, there's a way in which money money isn't hard. And I want to talk about this topic in conversation tonight, because when we were having this conversation, 
it took me going back and listening to our replay and reading all the comments. Y'all, we had like 300 some comments in the group with our folks who were joining us live. So, you know, I was like, oh, let me go back, do a close read of all these comments because I didn't want to miss anything in our community. And someone had asked the question of like, what does that feel like? Of like, what does money with ease, a life of ease feel like? And it clicked for me and, and it, it makes so much sense because I, re- I remember a time when money felt hard and it was hard envisioning what my life is today of money with ease. Like, I, I, and this is goes back to my beginning point of it's hard to dream when you're surviving. So when you're surviving with money, it's hard to conceptualize what it feels like to have money with ease. So I wanted to have this conversation tonight and to share with you three attributes that that I've identified through my own experience, experience of working with others, experience of being proximate to to other entrepreneurs who are full-time in their business, making revenue in their business, making money in their business. My business is a multiple six-figure business. I've had a six-figure year, a six-figure quarter, and a six-figure month. And so I say all that to say that my first year of teaching, my salary was $33,000. As a principal, my salary was $75,000 and I had a lot of debt. And so I didn't have very much disposable income. I was living paycheck to paycheck. I have not lived paycheck to paycheck in about three years. Um, And my net worth at the time before I started my um, consulting business was negative. My net worth now was six figures. I had no savings prior to starting my education consulting business. Now I have six figures worth of savings. I, the retirement I had was because the school system took it out my check. Now I contribute monthly to my retirement. And so I say all these things of, of just to be able to briefly illustrate for you my journey that has positioned me to be able to have this conversation. And I wanted to share with you three attributes that I've identified of what money with ease looks like to help those of you who might feel like money is hard, and I'll name for you, it's a consistent journey because there's still times I have to check myself because of how ingrained that belief has has been within me. That's how I grew up of seeing my mom. T- we, we shopped at the thrift store. <laughs> like we, we didn't go out to eat. We ate a lot of microwavable meals. So like I grew up with the belief that money was hard and I'm in a stage and phase where my mindset has most certainly shifted and I have to continue to do the work um, because something was ingrained in me for 30 plus years. So I wanted to share with you these three attributes that I've identified out of the spirit of helping people dream, even when you might feel like you're surviving, even when you might feel like money is hard. I wanted to share these three attributes to help you begin to start dreaming because the reality is If you want money to come with ease, it's totally possible. It's totally possible. But the first step is that you have got to visualize it for yourself. You've got to see what it looks like. You've got to embody what it feels like before it actually happens for you. So it's hard for us to dream about things that we don't know exist So that's why I want to have this conversation. So let's go ahead and jump into it. Three attributes of what money looks like and feels like when money um, comes with ease. So the first attribute of money with ease, when you're, when you are, when you no longer 
I shouldn't say no longer believe because it's a consistent work. But money with ease looks like giving joyful yeses. So I think there's two types of yeses that you could be giving professionally. And when I say professionally, I mean, whether that's at in your nine to five or that's in your business, there's two types of yeses you could give. When you're operating with money comes with ease, you give joyful yeses. When you're operating from a space that that money is hard, you are giving yeses out of desperation. So let me explain the difference between giving a joyful yes versus a yes out of desperation. Is when you're operating from a space that money feels hard, Oftentimes what will happen in your nine to five and in your business is you're giving a lot of yeses out of desperation. And in your nine to five, what this looks like is giving a yes out of desperation is you're saying yes to so many things that are being asked of you because you want to be perceived a certain way. You want to be looked at a certain way. You want to be considered for certain opportunities. And so because of that, you're giving yeses out of desperation, which then there, when you do that, there's a high risk that you are overstretching yourself. You're overcommitting yourself. And then you're risking exhaustion. You're ris- risking burnout. You're risking unhappiness because you're saying yes out of desperation, which means oftentimes you're saying yes to things that you really don't want to say yes to. You're saying yes because you feel like you have to do it. You feel like you can't say no. That's what a yes out of desperation feels like in your nine to five. In your business, a yes out of desperation means you say yes to every client who approaches you because you feel like you can't turn down the money. And that's what what, when money feels hard, you you feel like you can't say no to money. So somebody could be approaching you with an opportunity that will clearly underpay you and you feel like you can't say no. And so I, I, I share that because I think that's a great assessment for you, for you to be thinking about the yeses that you've been saying, whether it's in your nine to five in your business, have they been yeses out of desperation? And when you are, when you, you, are saying yes out of desperation. Here's the other thing. And so I'm going to take a a tangent, but I promise it's connected. So one of um, my dissertation was around how do we redesign the role of the principle for racial equity? So a part of my, my studies was really digging deeply into um, the history of the principle as well as the way oppression shows up. And this is a whole nother conversation. You're more than welcome to read my dissertation if you're interested. But essentially, oppression is baked in to all of our institutions, including the role of the principle that actually it was designed to be oppressive. That's a whole nother conversation. But a part of that work was um, realizing that oftentimes the the oftentimes when we think about oppression, I'm going to use racism, which is a form of oppression. 
When we think about racism, we think about racism at the individual level or we think about racism at an institutional level. So we think about is a person racist or we think about is an institution racist. So, for example, we talk a lot about the criminal justice system, which is institutionalized racism, right? Oftentimes, and one of the peace searches that I, I, I dived into who that was written by, I believe his name was Victor Ray. Um, you could Google it, Victor Ray. But he talked about how oftentimes what's missed is the way in which racism or oppression shows up at an organizational level of the dynamics of an organization that that begin to perpetuate those types of of oppressive, racist, misogynistic, homophobic beliefs, right? And one of the ways that was really interesting that I thought was just such a beautiful way to think about this because we don't often talk about this dynamic is one of the ways in which oppression works. And Victor A talks about this in his research when he talks about and challenging this theory of we need to start thinking about racism and oppression at the instant, or excuse me, at the organizational level is it shows up as it controlling your time. So oppression will, one of the ways in which it operates and it's at play is it controls your time. So a broader example that he gives is oftentimes in social services in, in different municipalities is you can't make an appointment and there you could be spending hours at the social service office and that's the ways in which oppression controls time, where people who have the least level of economic privilege have the least control of their time. And that's a way in which oppression shows up the organizational level. Right. Or in the way in which I've talked about this previously when it comes to education consulting is when organizations are not transparent with their budget. That is a way in which they are controlling people's time, because now I am spending time potentially, and actually I don't, but this is why I don't work with organizations who don't provide budget transparency because it actually is a way in which it breeds inequity. But I, I share this as an example of how oppression controls time is when you're not transparent with your budget. Now you have people spending time writing RFPs when they don't know your budget. And when they are writing something that is over budget and then they submitted it and now they found out they spent three, four, five, eight, 10, 15 hours writing an RFP that should have, if you would have just been trans transparent with your budget in the first place, I wouldn't have waste my, wasted my time. Same thing with job descriptions. People who go through first, second, third rounds and they don't find out the salary until the end. And it's like, well, that's actually not within my range that I was looking for. But if you would have put it that on the job description, I wouldn't even apply. Now you've wasted my time because guess what? When it comes to senior level positions, and I say this as someone, fun fact, I interned in the HR department for limited brands in college. So L Brands, which owns Victoria's Secret, uh, Express, Actually, I, I don't know if they still own Express, but any of that. Anyway, in the HR department, we were recruiting VPs and presidents of brands. You led with compensation. Like that was one of the first things because people aren't going to waste their time talking about a job that doesn't fit my compensation expectations. So when it came to higher level positions, that stuff was so transparent because you're talking to C-suite executives, right? And it's like, like, that's the first question. Well, what's the salary range? 
like before I even waste my time. So I say all that to say that when we're talking about saying a yes out of desperation, oppression will be controlling your time. Because when you're saying yes out of desperation, you are now committing yourself to being overworked and underpaid to now you have limited your ability to take on other clients till you get caught in this cycle to where now you're accepting low paid opportunities and you have less time to actually consider other opportunities to consider working on your offer or your business or your services or your messaging to position you for higher paying opportunities, you have less time. So that's why a yes out of desperation is so dangerous is because you are unconsciously agreeing to oppression controlling your time. Now, on the other side of this, when money comes with ease, you start giving joyful yeses. Because you only say yes to the things that will authentically bring you joy. Now, and I recognize, right, like this, this requires you to this. This is a journey, right? When when in the earliest stage of your business, the priority is bringing in revenue, right? So when I first started in my business, I would be saying yes to things that I would say no to today, right? But like my priority was revenue. I just needed to bring a steady, consistent flow of cash to where I would be saying yes to things. And it was a little bit of a yes out of desperation, right? But then things are gonna start to pivot and shift and you've gotta get yourself mentally to a place to where, because there are some people who have consistent revenue and they're still giving a yes out of desperation because that's all they're used to. You've got to be able to mentally pivot to yourself to be okay with saying no and knowing that you are, are what's for you won't miss you and you're not losing out when you say no. That actually the the consequences of oppression controlling your time are greater than getting this little check, right? Like those consequences outweigh having the little bit of revenue. And so when you begin to start saying the joyful yeses, the joyful yeses are, I only say yes to the things I really want to do. The things that will authentically bring me joy, which means there are things I say no to. And the no sounds like many different ways, right? It's like like 99% of the time when I say no, I'm, I ask if they're open to referrals, right? And I'll share it with, with people in my network. I'll pass along the opportunity. But for one reason or another, if it's a no for me, it's a no, and I've passed up, y'all, I passed up on an opportunity to host a podcast for one of the largest education organizations in this country because it was going to be a yes out of desperation. I was like, I don't need the money that bad. I mean, it feels like an exciting opportunity, but how significantly underpaid I would be. And y'all, I got my own podcast. <laughs> so it's not like I am searching to be on a podcast. Now it would have given me greater visibility, but the reality is, is did I absolutely need that visibility? I didn't absolutely need it 
So I passed on it because it felt like had I said yes, it would have been a yes out of desperation. So I wanted to offer up this language for you all, for you to be able to self-assess, are your yeses right now out of desperation or are they joyful? If you feel like your yeses are many or most of your yeses are coming out of desperation, begin to think and imagine what would it, what would a joyful yes look and feel like? Like that's a part of the dreaming part that I want to invite you to step into. Because like the, the, and, and if y'all can't tell like the way my intellectual academic brain that loves Cardi B and Meg Thee Stallion works, like I consume so many like theories and frameworks that oftentimes I like spit them out because of the connections that, you know, they, that just naturally come up. But another one that comes to mind is in the big leap that talks about, you know, limited beliefs and, and moving to your next level. It talks about this idea that each of us, you know, based off of our childhood, we've unconsciously set a thermostat in ourselves of how much joy, love and happiness we believe we deserve. And when we start to reach the peak of that thermostat that we self-identify for ourselves, we will unconsciously start to pull ourselves back. And what he talks about within within the big leap is the process of increasing your internal thermostat for joy, love and happiness is you have got to lean in to the feeling of, of abundance because you're going to be comfortable of the old feeling that the yes out of desperation is what feels comfortable to you. But the moment you open yourselves up to the joyful yeses, and some of you might be the joyful no, right? Like what the moment you start to, to open yourself up to that, you're going to start to get a feeling of ease, of freedom, of joy, whatever that feeling is. And when those feelings are intention, whatever feels better is going to win. So you got to be thinking about how do I create the type of situations and scenarios to where my next level feels better than my current reality. That's what you got to be like setting yourself up for, even when it feels like a risk. And, you know, What's a risk today may not be a risk tomorrow, but whatever feels risky today, making, taking the healthy risk and taking the first step and then sitting in it and celebrating it because it's that feeling that's going to help you redefine your internal thermostat. All right. So let's move on to the second one, which is the second attribute of, of operating from a space of money with ease is expansive thinking. And I was I was I was intentional about not calling this abundant thinking, but this is abundant thinking, but I'm intentionally calling it expansive thinking because I think oftentimes we use the word abundant thinking so frequently that we still actually don't define what it looks like. One of the ways in which abundant thinking shows up is your thinking becomes more expansive. So let me talk about what this looks like. And going back to this point Latrice made in the chat around one of the tenets of white supremacy culture is fear. When you operate out of fear, you're, you start to shrink your options. One of the, the tenets of white supremacy culture is either or thinking. You start to think either I got I, I to stay at my job 
full time or I got to do my business full time. (laughs) Right. We're like, there's a world in which they could coexist. You could be doing them both at the same time. You're like everybody, like everyone has these like drastic either ors where it's like either I, you know, um, <laughs> even when we talk about renegotiating, renegotiating in our nine to five, people think like, oh, I either have to do my nine to five or my business. It's like, no, you can renegotiate for my folks who, are outside of school-based roles, the renegotiation could look like I'm going to take a PTO day. And actually, this is for folks who are still in schools. Uh, I could be taking a PTO day using my PTO day. Some of y'all got PTO days four days and you ain't take a, a took a PTO day since B2K. Uh, listen, I'm just going, I'm talking out the side of my neck, but it's been a minute since you took a PTO day. And you could take a PTO day to simply have the open space to work on your business. So one way in which folks have done it is they've negotiated um, working at 80% of their role. So that way they could have one day a week in which they could be be working on their business. And so for folks who are in school-based roles, that language of, of working 80% roles isn't is in, um, is language our HR departments is familiar with. But what it does look like is how you renegotiate your commitments outside of the school day. Some of us are sitting on a lot of committees. We're sitting on a lot of task force. We're leading a lot of things that don't come with additional pay. Okay? So it it looks good on your resume, but money with ease, you deeply understand how your time is money, which is why oppression works the way that it does. If it will control your time, that's one of the reasons why we all hate the DMV because they got you stuck at the DMV all day, which is the way in which oppression controls your time, right? So the way expansive thinking works is this expansive thinking acknowledges options and creates options. So the opposite of expansive thinking would be your th- thinking shrinks, where you're, sh- you, you're shrinking your options to think, well, I, gotta, I, my, I only have two options, this or this. When it's like, no, you actually have more options, right? Expansive thinking begins to think like, and, and, and for me, I go back to like my first year as a teacher. My thinking was so expansive because I was like, I'm not about to fail my kids. I will try any and everything to figure this shit out. My thinking is so expansive around what's possible and what I could tap into and what I try and what I do. Like my first year of teaching is an entrepreneurship case study because I was so willing to fail fast, which we talk about in the program, um, in, in my program, Get Launch Consulting. Entrepreneurship is failing fast. It is being willing to try things, not being personally tied to the outcome to when they don't work. You don't think yourself as a failure, which is another characteristic of white supremacy culture, because that's the way perfectionism shows up as we begin to think of people as failures rather than acknowledging that some things don't work. Sometimes we make mistakes, but you need to get in the habit of failing fast. And that's one of the ways in which expansive thinking shows up. 
right? And my first year of teaching was the case study for entrepreneurship because y'all, I was in there trying so much ish. I was trying video storytelling. I, I mean, when I think back on it, y'all, I had this thought today as I was laying on the massage table. I got a massage earlier and I have some of the clearest thinking when I had a friend who said, um, the mind is like water. When it's calm, it becomes clear. And I was like, ooh, that is so good. Um, and when I'm on the massage table, my mind becomes so calm that it becomes so clear that I have all the ideas. So Erica and Latrice, get ready because we're going to be talking about some stuff this week because I have I had lots of ideas today. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But I, I was saying that, girl, I don't even know how I got there. Of I was bringing that up of... Um, expansive thinking and thinking about um, expansive thinking looks like you have options available to you and or you are are creating options. So let me give you an example of what this this looks like and sounds like is when you think when you operate from a space of money with ease and your transmission goes out in your car and I don't even know how much it costs to recover to replace the transmission. Let's say it's $2,000. Follow along with me. But if it's $2,000 and you operate from a space that money is hard, your options are like, all right, I either got to Take, put it on my credit card, take out a loan. Come on, Latrice, you better quote numbers, 5K. Like you, you begin to think limited around your options where I got to put it on a credit card. I could call a family member, borrow the money, or I could, you know, take out a loan and replace it. When you're operating from a space of, of money is ease, you have options to where you could literally pay for it. So if I had a 5K, if if I had a 5K, 2K, 3K, 5K expense hit today, I could cover it. If I had a 10K expense hit today, I could cover it, right? And part of, like, that wasn't the case for me, though. That was the case for me three years ago. I would say it was not the case for me probably four or five years ago. That would not have been the case. But today, that's the case. If I had a four or five-figure expense pop up, I could cover it. But it, let's say I couldn't cover it, but still operating from a space of money with ease, you begin to think expansively around your options. Okay, what can I do for 5K? And I actually think that us as marginalized people, we have a unique spirit of being inherently creative because our ancestors had to be inherently creative, right? Where it's like, okay, what do I need to do to get 5K? Are there things in my house that I have not used in the past two years that I can put on Facebook Marketplace? Are there things that, is there something that I could turn on within the next three to five days in my business that I could price it and with very little effort, I could sell two to three and then make my 5K, right? So maybe I might decide, you know what? I always get all these people asking me to do X, Y, and Z and wanting to quote unquote pick my brain. I'm going to put together a pick my brain session that I'm going to charge 150 bucks for. You could do 30, you could do 60 minutes. That's your business. And let's say I decide to sell five of those within the next week. 
I'm also going to do a, a live workshop. I'm going to charge $97 per seat. And at that price, I want to get 30 people to sign up. So between Facebook Marketplace, my Pick My Brain, and my workshop, I'm going to get my 5K. Right? And maybe you still put it on that credit card, but you're like, I'm going to pay this off in the next 30 days. So expansive thinking truly steps into the fact that money is all around you. And rather than feeling this level of, I, I, I say this and I'm, I'm, I'm being very careful when I say this um, because, because I have struggled financially, I'm being very careful when I say this and it's coming from a place of empathy when I say it. And this applies to me as well, is that when money is hard, Oftentimes, you're in a victim relationship with money. I don't say that from a judgment standpoint. I say it from a, an experience standpoint, where your relationship with money is one in which you see yourself as the victim, where you see yourself subject to money. So when money isn't treating you well, you feel like you're powerless in the situation, that you're just subject to the way in which money decides to show up that day. So when your car breaks down and you need $5,000, the victim orientation or the shrinking standpoint is a, I am victim, I'm subject to this, this circumstance. And now my, my, my thinking on how to react starts to shrink to limited options. Where because I am not tapped into the abundance nature of money, my options feel limited to where I actually have to create more debt in order to cover this expense. That's what a victim perspective looks like when you have a victim relationship with money. And I know it very well. <laughs> like I'm speaking from experience. I know it very well. When you step into your power with money, you're stepping into expansive thinking where you see options and you create options. So when you begin to increase your financial options to where you build your savings, you you got things in, in many accounts and places, then you got options, right? I could pull 10K from my savings. I could pull 10K if I have, I have a solo 401K that I could take a loan against and pay myself back. I could pull it from there. I could put it on my AMX and pay it off next month. Like I have many options for how I'd want to cover it. I have a home equity line of credit. I could pull it from there. I have options, right? If I had an expense pop up. But even if I didn't have options, expansive thinking would have me create options. It wouldn't, the victim relationship would see my options as limited of put it on my credit card and now I'm stressed out because I got to pay the bill. So Oftentimes we use the language of scarcity and abundant thinking, and I'm starting to resonate with this language that just came to me of expansive thinking and, and shrinking thinking. And randomly this came to me. I don't know if you, you all may have seen a reel that I posted recently of most people who are uncomfortable talking about money. Talk about money when they found the deal or talk about money when they've had an unexpected expense. So they'll tell you how much it costs to, to, to replace the transmission because they start to complain of like, y'all, they said it was going to be $5,000 to replace the transmission in my car. 
or that fur- my furnace broke down, my water heater broke down, and do you know the bill to pay it was going to be X? They have no problem telling you how much expense, unexpected expenses cost. They have no problem telling you when they got a deal. Oh, girl, this dress was $20 at Ross. Girl, I found these shoes on a clearance rack at DSW. They was only $25, right? And so the the clarity and language that I've gotten this past week is that actually what, that's what a victim relationship with money looks like is because when you feel as if you're a victim of money, you are preparing for the rug to be pulled out underneath you financially. Like you're anticipating unexpected expenses. And when it happens, you're like, whoo, whoo. I, I, it's, it's like you are, you're waiting for the world, the sky to fall out financially, right? Or when you get a deal, you, a, a, a victim relationship with money looks like, oh, I got this little quick win. I got the, the dress at Ross for $20. Like, I got to win. I, I I was able to cheat the system. I was able to like cheat the game because I found this dress for $20. Versus I'm like expansive thinking, and this is actually going a little bit into our third attribute. If the dress is $250, if I want it, I want it. Because let me tell you, when I walk into a room to start having conversations around sponsorship and I'm wearing that $250 dress, I'm feeling like a million bucks and I'm going to get me a check with a comma, Right? So like, I actually see the value exchange and this is sharing a little bit of my expansive thinking. I actually see the value exchange of, I'm, I see the dress as an investment because it's going to help me step into the energy to call in the money that will position us to be able to bring in more revenue. I think one of the things that um I've had to think about is because, um, y'all, I'm going to say this here and me and my family are not on Instagram, which is why I can say it here. And even if they were, it, it'd be okay. But I'm just putting it out there. What are the people who have had that conversation with where they're like, don't talk about money, but they'll 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 name their expenses and their deals is my mom. Right? So part of the work that I've had to do is recognizing that. As much as I'd want to follow the rule to stay away from that type of thinking, there's some circumstances where um, I'm not able to. And in those circumstances, I have to realize that when it shows up, that that's actually a projection of someone else's shrinking thinking. And I have to recognize it for what it is, but still continue to walk in my expansive thinking. Right. And so um I I just hold that because particularly as all of us are going to be growing more and more in our business and we're getting more and more visibility, we don't always have the choice to stay away from people who don't share the same level of thinking. I've noticed that as my presence is growing on social media, I'm getting more comments from people I've never met before (laughs) and I don't know. And some of the comments are out of pocket and I'm like, either I'm going to respond and set a boundary or I'm going to delete and block you, right? And like, I'm really comfortable doing that. I wasn't comfortable with that early in my journey where I was like, well, what are people going to say? What are they going to think? I felt like as if I was going to have to adjust to other people when the reality is, is 
when that level of thinking shows up, I hold it out as object, like it is what it is, but that actually has nothing to do with me. And when appropriate, I'll set a boundary. It is what it is. Okay, so last point. So we went through the first two uh, of the three attributes of money with ease is, y'all are so fun. Come on, doors of the church is open. Let me, you know what? Let me, don't get me downloading a little organ out and I just hit the button like, doom, doom, during my little lives, doom, doom. Because uh, I would, and I would be highly entertained by that. Okay, anyway, so three attributes of money with ease. The first one we talked about were joyful yeses as opposed to yeses out of desperation. The second one, which we were just talking about, um, is expansive thinking as opposed to shrinking thinking. Um, Latrice, don't get me started because I'll get on a whole rant. And... Well, and, and here's and here's here's the balance too that I have. So for my folks on Facebook, Latrice's comment says, "It looks like I can't charge a hundred dollars for a webinar." Um, yes, you can double it actually, which I completely a hundred and ten percent agree with. And the balance that I continue to have is some people need to start with the undercharging. Like some some people just need to. Some people need to have the experience of overworking in their business to know what it feels like to not want to ever go back to that. And like some people, you know, my coach calls it the confidence curve. We're like some people need to start with the pricing that whatever your pricing is, you need to feel confident in it. A hundred and ten percent, whether it is fifty dollars whatever your pricing is, you need to feel confident in it. Because that confidence is what will help someone make their decision to work with you. I'm not going to work with nobody who's voice shaking and like they're wavering. Well, actually, I could do it for this. I'm not working with nobody like that, right? And so... You need to feel confident in your pricing and whatever that number is, that's where you start. And my coach calls it the confidence curve is once you start there, you're going to continue to build your confidence around what you charge and you're going to increase your pricing over time. And so I want to honor that pricing is a journey and it's, it's, it's hard for people to, to dream about the possibilities of pricing if they haven't seen other people charge higher prices, which is part of the reason why community is so important because there aren't public spaces where people are freely talking about pricing. Those conversations most certainly happen in paid spaces where people will ask, how much are y'all charging for your programs? What are the features? What are the benefits? What's the learning container? Like people are most certainly having those conversations. Not all the answers are in a free Facebook group. Okay. And let me think of how I want to say this. And then I'm going to move. I truly am going to move forward. I think some of the piece that people miss as they are attempting to build their community in free spaces. I'm, 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 let me, let me acknowledge that I am trying to be thoughtful of how I say this because I want it to come across the right way. 
Now, I, I value speaking truth free, truthfully and honestly, and I also want to make sure that my thoughts and ideas are coming across in the way in which I intend it. Most people with multiple six and seven figure businesses aren't deeply engaged in free Facebook groups. So even when you are seeking answers in free Facebook groups, most of the time you are going to be getting answers from people who are still in the early stage of their business. And they for, therefore, they have actually not experienced the multiple, the six-figure quarter or month. So they're giving you answers at the, at the stage in which they've experienced. So for example, one of the experiences I've seen is when people are asking around CRMs and free Facebook groups, most multiple six-figure and seven-figure businesses are not using Dubsado for their CRM. They're not using ClickUp for a CRM because those things are not CRMs. But that is the answer you will get in a free Facebook group because multiple six-figure and seven-figure businesses are not spending their time in free Facebook groups because they don't have the time. But let me tell you, they do have time in paid masterminds because they've paid a five-figure, four-figure, five, most times five-figure investment where they're showing up and they're engaging. So I say that to say of like part of this goes back to your expansive thinking of investing in yourself. Some of you are still trying to piecemeal your business and you're looking for answers in the wrong places. And here's an analogy. You are going to the first year teacher for answers. Like you going to <laughs> the person next door who in their first year teaching too, trying to figure ish out for answers in the free Facebook group. So I'm not saying that there isn't value in free spaces. I'm just letting you know who has the capacity to spend time there is, is, is usually someone at a certain stage in their business, which um, I, I just say proceed with caution and take everything with a grain of salt. Um, Antoinette, the alternative option is get launch consulting, which you're in. So girl, you good you've already made the decision to invest in yourself. Okay, um, so let's move on to the thir third and final point. I just had to go on that rant because y'all, I'm, I'm, I'm even, I'm, this is a part of like <laughs> the mindset shift. It, like, come on, Mario, let people know. The people who have the answers and the experience to be able to give you the answers are not in a free Facebook group. Um, okay, so moving forward. The third attribute of money with ease um, is that you prioritize both the need to haves and the nice to haves. So that's our third and final attribute of money with ease is oftentimes when you feel like money is hard, you only, you only prioritize the need to haves. How many of us grew up where when we asked our parents with something that asked our parents for something that we wanted, their response was, you don't need that or we don't need that. Our decision making is is prioritize your need to have. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. Right. Because we need food. We need shelter. We need clothes. We need, you know, a roof over our head. Like, yes, there are most certainly things that we need. And part of money with ease is giving yourself permission to also prioritize your wants. 
right? Come on, come on. You ain't got McDonald's money. We all need that. Y'all, listen, I, I'm always so fascinated. Black people aren't a monolith and I continue to be fascinated with our shared experiences. Like, <sighs> love it. Um, so here, here's the piece that I just want to say around this is part of your expansive thinking sees yourself as an investment. It sees yourself as something that needs to be taken care of, that needs to be nurtured, that needs to be watered, that needs to be poured into. The greatest investment for my company is me. I'm sorry, the greatest asset in my company is me. Right? So if I don't take care of myself, if I don't treat myself well, I am compromising my company, right? So part of money with ease looks like the things that you want are not off limits. Some of us have some of the most basic wants that we're not giving ourselves into. We're not giving ourselves permission to be able to say yes to because we have been conditioned to believe we should only say yes if we absolutely need it. Y'all, the conversation that's going on in this chat about these crayons, it's hilarious, okay? Come on, not the waxy joints. And the fact that I know exactly what you're talking about, okay? So part of the reflective question here for you is to think about what are your wants? What do you want? For some of you, it is the smallest thing of you want an appetizer. You want a dessert, you want that nice pair of jeans. You want the spa pedicure, not the basic pedicure. You want the spa or the deluxe. Some of you want a massage. Okay. Some of you, the wants are bigger and they should be bigger because you deserve bigger. The wants might be a vacation. It might be a type of home. It might be a car. It might be a certain experience for your kids or your children. It might be a new cookingware set, new kitchen appliances. Whatever those wants are, those are as important as your needs. And so part of money with ease looks like, and I'll speak for myself, is I always say yes to my smaller, uh, and I, when I say small, I mean, if it's something I want and it's under $5,000, I'm saying yes. I can cover it. I, I'm, I'm, I, I have the means. I get massages. Um, it used to be every other week. Now it's looking like every week. <laughs> like I, if I want to go to happy hour, I'm going to go to happy hour. If I want appetizer, I'm going to get an appetizer. If I want those $150, $200 pair of jeans, I'm going to get them. And I have the means to do it right. But I'm also not talking myself out of it 
because I don't believe that the money won't come back to me. Like I have the money and I know the money is like more money is coming. Right. So I want to be clear. I'm not like robbing Peter to pay Paul. I've got it. But even some of us, and this is a part of our thinking. And this is why, this is why you have to start thinking of money with ease before it feels like ease. Because there are folks that I know and know of where even when they get the money in their revenue, they still are are operating from a space that money is hard and they're not joyful. They're not happy because they're not giving into their desires. They're not taking the trip. They're not like buying the perfume that they want. Like part of, and going back to what we talked about in this in the conversation earlier of each of us has this internal thermostat of how much love, joy, and happiness that we feel like we deserve. The only way to reset the thermostat is to take the healthy risk, experience the euphoric feeling that is on the other side of that risk because it is the feeling of doing the thing that once felt risky that will push you out of your zone of comfort. So when you, let me give you a couple quick examples so that way, ooh, this chat is good, y'all. Ooh, this chat is good. I wish there was a way to save this chat, Maji. It's so good. Um, an example is if you pay the, let's say you have your heart really set on some type of experience for you and your business, and it costs $900. And you pay the $900 and you have the most amazing euphoric experience. Now, you might have been a little nervous after you hit the pay button, but you had the most euphoric experience. You learned so much. You made so many new connections that once you paid $900, you're not going to think twice about paying $900 again for a similar type of experience. You might even be like, oh, now it's $1,800. Well, I knew when I paid $900, that felt like a steal. I'm going to pay $1,800 now. The feeling that's on the other side of doing the thing that once felt risky is what causes you to, to increase your internal thermostat. Let me give you one other example. I love massages. I am a massage connoisseur, okay? Let me tell you. And, and I say this, I'm going to just say it. If you've gotten a massage at Massage Envy, that ain't it. There's more to life, fam. There's more to life. Because let me tell you, the moment I had me a massage at the Ritz-Carlton and the Four Seasons, I cannot look at Massage Envy the same. I refuse to go to a massage envy. No shade to anybody who goes, but part of this is like, I want, I want you to treat yourself in a way that once you get the first contract, the first five, four figure month, the first five figure month, I want you to create an experience for you and your, yourself of something that you want, that you give into to create a euphoric feeling that will set you up to want to do it again. So sometimes my treats are, I'm going to have a spa day at the Ritz. I'm going to have a spa day at, at the Ritz Carlton. And honey, I remember 
I remember the first time I stayed at the Ritz Carlton and they came to my room and was like, man, would you like some water? I was like, sure. And they brought me the glass bottle. And I was like, um, how much is this? It's like, oh, this is free. I was like, in my head, I'm like, this glass, this artesian water. Oh my God, this is free. <laughs> right. And so like reset my expectations. Right. You go and you have amenities, you have the locker room, you have the robe, you have the nice fuzzy slippers, you get champagne while you're waiting. You got granola bars. There's one, um, uh, the Mandarin Hotel here, which is one of a uh, five-star hotel in DC. They have fruit, granola bars, lemon water, cucumber water, and a, a whirlpool while you wait. Folks, and <laughs> this is the other when money comes with ease. You actually start showing up to stuff early because you want to leverage the amenities. So I don't show up for my appointment five, 10 minutes before. I show up at least 45 minutes before because I might want to dip in the whirlpool. I might want to sit in the Zen room for a little bit and just be one with my spirit and my mind. Like that. And that one time I was in child, I think I was in South Carolina and I wanted a massage. And the only option was massage envy. When I tell you, I stepped back into that thing and I was like, oh, I'm not doing this again. No shade of this, what you still do. I'm not doing this again. Because I've experienced the other side, right? We're like, that's my new norm and my new normal. And guess what? It, when I, when I, those experiences create a euphoric feeling for me because I, I treat myself in that way, that it actually continues to reinforce, reinforce and affirm my expansive thinking. Um, listen, Maya, we were talking about earlier about uh, someone shared with me, the mind is like water when it's calm, it's clear. And when I get massages, my mind is the most clear. Um, when I, I don't do basic spa pedicures, I always get deluxe. I need you, I need a towel, I need some stones, I need a massage. I need to treat and pamper myself the way in which I want to be treated. As we're talking about money with ease, I encourage you when you hear certain numbers, what do, what, what do you equate those numbers to? Because that's, that is helping you get clear on how you hear money. The way I heard 250 five years ago, I heard that as my car insurance. I heard that as two months of my cell phone bill. I would hear that as two weeks worth of groceries. Like I would equate the way I heard money was my bills. Today, $250, I'm like, oh, that's a massage at the Ritz Carlton. Like that's like the it, but I acknowledge that that's that's been a part of my journey, right? Of how I heard two. So imagine, and this is why I I I share back this reflective question to you because of the level of awareness you want to have as an entrepreneur around how you hear money, however you hear it will show up in your business. So five years ago, when I heard 250 and I was thinking about all the expenses that I could cover with $250, imagine if I had to pay 250 for a coach, 
right? I would have had a block. Versus today, if somebody tell me they're coaching for $250, i am a low-key look at them sideways like, you ain't real. Something wrong with your business if you charge charging $250 for coaching. <laughs> like, because I, I would actually expect more. And y'all, I could have a whole nother live conversation around how much I've invested in coaching. I My past investments in coaching the past two years have all been five-figure investments. Which... You invest in relation. What I've noticed is your investment in coaching oftentimes is in pace with your revenue. Part of my first investment in, in coaching was $300 a month. My next investment in coaching was around $3,000 a year. I've paid $10,000 for a coaching program. I've paid $20,000 for a coaching program. I paid $30,000 for a coaching program. Every single investment I've made in my business, I've made back my investment within at least 30 to 90 days because A, I'm going to show up and do the work. A, I do my due diligence in terms of who I pick as a coach, who I identify, do they know their thing? Let me read client testimonials, speak to clients. And then I show up and do the work. So I invested $30,000 in a coaching program and had a six-figure launch 30, about 60 days later, right? So I, I, part of the journey is as you begin to hear money, you'll also begin to you will naturally, your prices will increase, your investment in yourself, what you believe you're worthy of in terms of investing in yourself or coaching should also continue that same trajectory. Um, to Nicole's comment, I love this so much because here's every time I have one of these experiences at the, the Ritz, at the Four Seasons, I sit there and I think to myself, I wish every educator could have this experience. I wish every educator could have this experience because part of this is just simply being exposed, you start shifting your expectations. The first time I stayed at the Ritz-Carlton, was the first time I let someone carry my bag into the hotel. And let me tell you, even though I carry my own bag, I'm like, I, I ain't got to. And if someone don't ask, I'm like, can you get my bag, please? <laughs> like, I don't need to carry it and slug it up into the, the elevator and up to my room. Somebody else can do that. And so, like, part of that is I want us to normalize being served. I want us to normalize being nurtured. I want us to normalize luxury, experiencing luxury and treating us well. And I share with you those three thoughts. And I want to be really clear because oftentimes when I talk about how I treat myself for people who have are not used to treating themselves that way, they can feel they can they can be it can be off-putting for them. They could call me uppity, they could call me bougie, they could call me all those words and that's fine. And part of it is, is I just, I, I want to create, I want to normalize ease for black women. I want to normalize ease for black people. I want to normalize ease for marginalized communities. And I want to normalize ease for educators. Jeans, wearing jeans, 
there's more to life than being able to wear jeans because you got a jeans pass. Okay, y'all. Have a good night. Be great. Be well. And I will chat soon.